I want to start off today by just saying two words. Jesus Christ. There simply is no other name that produces such a reaction, amen? Just by itself. That could be the sermon. And I'm sure when I said his name, it brought about a reaction in all of our hearts. Some good, some bad, but something, right? This whole week as I've been preparing this message, that's what God has put on my heart. Jesus, who he is, and what Christmas is about. Um, you know, as we're in the middle of the Christmas season, it's such an interesting time to reflect on Jesus and his name and the reactions that we have to him as a person. His name is amazing, but it, it, it's funny because even if you hate him, it still has a reaction in your heart, still creates a reaction. He's the only name that can be used in worship and as a swear word, right? On one hand, our society refuses to say even Merry Christmas in a lot of ways. And on the other hand, you, you, you put on the radio or you put on a Spotify playlist, and in the middle of the playlist, you'll hear, you'll still see traditional Christmas hymns kind of buried into the, into the mix of whatever is being played. And it's funny, it's, it's really strange to hear Mar Mariah Carey sing, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. I'm like, who's Savior? My Savior, yeah. And she says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Really? This is so funny because even as we try to sanitize our society and remove his name, you can't get rid of him. You can't hide him. You can't erase him. You can't suppress him. You can't stop him. Isn't that the God we serve? Last week, Mike, you started a series called uh, our series on uh, a royal Christmas and Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, walks us through the birth of Jesus. And today we're going to pick up in chapter 2. We're not really sure what the time gap is between chapter 1 and chapter 2. As Mike will unpack next week, uh, King Herod will execute an order to kill all baby boys under the, year, under the age of 2. And so we're not really quite sure if it's one year or two years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But what we read here is that the... Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and Herod picks up on what's going on. And so let's, let's do something. We're going to stand up, and we're going to read uh, the scriptures today. And every time I've done alternating verses, I never put the verses on there, the numbers. So I think I got it this time. Yeah. So I'm going to read verse 1, and then you guys pick up verse 2, on and on, until verse 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet.
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had seen that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Cool, you can be seated. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us your word. Even though I have the mic, God, you have our hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would convict our hearts, that you would remind us of Jesus Christ and the wonderful things he's done for us. And, God, that today would be a time of worship, genuine, heartfelt worship. In your name we pray, amen. So today we're going to look at three characters. We're going to do kind of like a case study. We have three main characters in the story. We have King Herod. We have the chief priests and scribes, and then we have the wise men. And so I'm going to go through each one of them, and it's cool to see how they each react to the presence of Jesus. They all have such a different reaction to him, and as I was reading through it, I could see why they would have reacted to it and why we react to him in some of those ways that are similar and what we can learn from that, okay? So King Herod, the chief priests, and the magi, or the wise men. So first, let's look at King Herod. And so this King Herod, I'm sure for anybody who's read the New Testament, I know when I was growing up, I used to think like, wow, Herod, like he lived for a really long time. He's there from like Matthew, and then he's all the way into Acts. And, you know, like why, why is this one guy so resilient? Herod is actually a family name. And it is in reference to multiple kings who carry the same name. And so the one that's featured in this story this is Herod the Great, or Herod the First. And his nickname, as were all of the kings of Judea, was King of the Jews. King of the Jews was his nickname. So keep that in your mind. And King Herod, he was not actually Jewish. He was an Edomite, and he was selected to be the king of Judea artificially by the Roman Senate. And so not a Jew, but was a friend of Rome and was nicknamed King of the Jews, very ironically. And so we get to this part in the story where the wise men come to Jerusalem, they see the star, they get there, and they come in search of the king of the Jews. And can you imagine King Herod, you know, powerful, can do whatever he wants, and these three foreigners come from out of nowhere, and he's like, you're not from, you're not from here, what are you doing here? And they're like, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. He reacts in three ways that are, it's just... Very interesting. The first one is in verse 3. It says, when, the, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus is a baby. This is King Herod and the birth of a baby is alarming to this king who has, he was known for his building projects. And so he had built many, many, many buildings, had lots of money, the entire army at his disposal. 
if he called Rome to bring in troops upon troops to destroy these people, he could have easily done it. But this baby is born, and it says he's troubled. And he was troubled because if Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, that would mean that everything Herod worked for was threatened, right? He would no longer be considered the king of the Jews. Imagine being called the king of the Jews, and then people come and are like, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's like, well, in his heart, he knows that's not him, right? And so that would trouble, that troubled him. But because he was not a Jew, he had to make sure. So in verse 4, the second thing we see he does is he gets help. He seeks the counsel of the, the high priest or the chief priest. And so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so he gets the expert feedback of these chief priests, these, these uh, masters of the law. And then, of course, the, no the third thing is he seeks to erase this threat. Now that he knows the king of the Jews is coming, he's like, I got to do something about this. And so in verses 7 to 8, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. When Herod finds out that there is a prophecy, does, does Herod pursue Christ? Does he go and say, I want to find him because I want to worship him? That is quite literally what he says, but what does he mean? He, he means to, to er eradicate this threat to the throne. And as we'll learn next week, like I said before, he will execute an order to assassinate every baby boy under the year, uh, under, under two years old. And so his reaction to Jesus is incredible because Jesus is no mere baby. Amen? Imagine if it was just a regular baby, King Herod should be able to just go on with his day, go on with his life. No attention paid to this. But instead, he summons the power of an army. I can't even imagine like the military or the, or the, like the, the strategic planning that would go involved in saying, I want to eradicate every two-year-old boy. Like, can you imagine how hard that would have been? But this is how threatened he was. This is how threatened he was by what you may say is a mere baby, but we know and we worship, as, worship him as king of the Jews. Amen? And so I'm reading this, and it's incredible to me, and I start to, to realize that King Herod's reaction to the presence of Jesus, he, it really mirrors our own reaction to Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, and we, we we're troubled in our hearts, because we know that if Jesus is truly the king of kings, then our personal kingdoms are on the line as well. It reminds me of a friend I met on campus a few weeks ago. I'll just call him E because I don't want to say his full name in case he's listening today, but really friendly and outgoing guy and was really open to getting coffee. And so we, we went out for coffee and we're chatting for about an hour and he's giving me all the kind of like typical answers about why he doesn't think there's a higher power or whatever and we're going back and forth and an hour in I'm like, this isn't, this isn't going anywhere. We're just here for dialogue's sake. This isn't going anywhere. So I cut to the chase and I'm like, listen, man, what is getting in the way of you following Jesus? Let's just clear the table because I'm probably never going to see you again. So tell me, why, are you not, why do you not want to follow Jesus? And his response has shocked me. He says to me, you know, Jermaine, if Jesus is real, it means I have to live for him. 
It means I can't do what I want when I want. And you know what? I, I just really, I don't want that in my life right now. I have a lot I want to do, and I do not want to answer to anyone. And so it's just easier for me to not believe in him. I'm just going to do my thing, and everybody's happy. And you know, it's funny because I asked him for his honest feedback, and then he gave it to me, and then I was still shocked because I don't think I'd ever heard such an honest response to why somebody wouldn't want to explore Christ and his claims and what he, what he offers us. But after a few moments, you know, he leaves and he goes on his way, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, and I'm just shell-shocked. I'm like, wow, isn't this just such a picture of our hearts? Isn't this who we are as people? As human beings, the mere presence of Jesus is a, is a threat to everything we hold dear. Because when Jesus, if Jesus is real, which we believe he is and we celebrate that, and if he is king of kings and he is lord of lords, what do our kingdoms mean in comparison to his? What legs do we have to stand on? What can we hold dear in relation to Jesus? There's nothing that's nearly as valuable as following Jesus. And so when we discover Jesus, I think we have two choices. The first one is, is we can submit to him in worship. We can crown him king of kings and lord of lords and bow our knees to him in worship. We can surrender and we can watch him destroy our kingdoms as he builds his. That's the first choice. Or you could do what Herod did. We could, we could seek to destroy him or to sanitize him or to ignore him or to erase him. You can go to great lengths to snuff out his presence in your life. But Romans 14 verse 11 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Amen? So my question for you today is how will you react? Whether you're uh, a Bible-believing Christian or you're somebody who's exploring the claims of Jesus, how will you react to him? How will you react to him? What, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to push him down or are you going to fall on your face in worship? He is do that worship. He is worthy of that praise. And so I beg you, I implore you to explore Jesus. Look at him. Pay attention to him. Fix your eyes on him. Think about him. Fill your hearts with his words. And really consider what this Christmas season is about. So that's Herod. He did not play his cards right because in immediately after in verse 13 it says, and then Herod died. So <laughs> didn't work out well for him. So that's Herod. And then in the second, I guess, group of characters we have is the chief priests and the scribes. So let's look at them from verses 3 to 6. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's, the, that's who they're talking about, the chief priests, all Jerusalem. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall a ruler come who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so here we meet these guys, the chief priests and the scribes. And if you've been tracking with us through, through this series, we've, you've heard us talk about the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Of the four Gospels, Matthew loves to talk about these guys. He talks about them more than any of the other three Gospels. And it's because, as you know, the series is called The Royal Christmas, or the, the larger series is called Letters from the King. Jesus Christ is King. And so his mere presence with the chief priests and the scribes 
it, it brought about a reaction in them. And it was them who ultimately brought Jesus to the cross. It was ultimately them who sought to arrest him and handed him over to Rome. And so these guys are always in, in his crosshairs. And so we meet him here, and they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's the, the prophecy that they're quoting. And they confirm that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. And then that's the last you hear of them from in the story. That's it. They're gone for now. You know, the thing that left me scratching my head after reading this was, how is it possible that these guys are so indifferent? Have you, just shout it out. How many stories in the Bible have you read about Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes? How many, of those, how many stories have you read about them dropping everything they had to go and find the king to worship him? How many stories are there? There, yeah, goose egg, zero. There's none. One? Okay, well, not, in the, not baby Jesus. Yeah. Paul is the only one, and it, it, Jesus had to get his attention in a pretty harsh way, right? The only things that we read about are the, the shepherds and the magi from Matthew and Luke. I love this quote from Leon Morris. He says, It is interesting that although they could say immediately where the Messiah would be born, they apparently did nothing about the report that the Magi brought. They fail by being passive. And I'm just scratching my head because I'm like, how? How do you have hundreds of years of prophecies? Hundreds of prophecies. I think there's over 600 Old Testament prophecies. These are the experts in the law. These are people who had to memorize word for word entire chunks of scripture to be considered even a normal Jew. They knew the Bible. They knew it inside out. They see the star. The Magi roll up and they're like, oh, he's born in Bethlehem. Okay, yeah, look, we have this thing from Micah that says Micah told us where he'd be born. Cool. And they're like, it's going to go about my life now. I can't imagine being a young Jew growing up you grow into adulthood, you, grow into, you become an old man, your whole life you're hearing about the coming Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. He's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. He's going to come. He's going to rebuild his temple. We're going to worship him. He's the king who we've been waiting for for thousands of years. And then he comes and they're like, nothing. Nothing. I still have no idea apart from the hardness of their hearts. Hardness of their hearts. They are so indifferent and passive to, to this amazing story. And I, I, you know what? I, I, I read it, and then I, I point my fingers at them, and then there's three pointing back to me, and I'm like, that's me. <laughs> because we so often respond to Jesus with the same type of indifference, right? So often in my life, I am completely indifferent to the presence of Jesus. You know, between family, work, even ministry, if I can say that, it's so easy to lose sight of God in the midst of our lives, right? And in so many ways, I feel like I'm exactly like these high priests and scribes. Because even though I know a lot about God, even though I've read the scriptures from my, through my childhood and into my teenage years and as into manhood, I can still live completely indifferent to him. And that's what God has been teaching me this week through this passage. The reason we drift from God is it's a heart problem. It's a worship issue. 
Because I say to you, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of falling on our faces in praise and adoration. And he is worthy of our prayer and he is worthy of our obedience. And yet we resist so much. You know, after everything the chief priests knew, the right reaction for them would have been to get on their donkeys, get to Bethlehem, lay down their praises and their treasures to worship this king who they've been waiting for. Instead, they ignore him. They completely ignore his work. And you know we do the same thing regularly. You know, every time we don't show gratitude towards his grace, we act like them. Every time we continue to live without repentance and we feed this habitual sin in our life sometimes, it's the same thing. Every time we make our worship conditional to think that he should be doing something and then we hold back our worship because he's not doing or working the way we want him to work, that's exactly what they did. Every time we breeze through prayer or we refuse to do it or we tell people we will and we don't, right? We're holding back worship that is due to him. This is what, the, this is what they did and this is what we're guilty of. And you know, as we go into Christmas time, it gets even harder because we can so easily trick ourselves into thinking that we're worshiping Jesus because we go big, right? Between the gifts and the parties and all the things on our schedule, it is possible to go hard for Christmas but not go hard for Jesus. They're not the same thing. And especially being North Americans, it's so easy for us to fall into that trap. All the trappings of Christmas, nary a thought about Christ. And so as we go into the Christmas season, I think it's in eight days, I, I came across this passage, and I want to leave it for you because I think it's, it's, it's really timely for us, and it's, it's from Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, and it's God's message to the churches in, in Ephesus. The yellow didn't stand out really well there, so I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient obedience, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Who's saying this? Who's saying this to John? It's Jesus. The same baby who they ignore, this is what he's saying. Because the baby grows up, right? And he goes to the cross, and he takes our sins, and after three days, he raises from the dead, and he dwells with his people, he ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. And you know, Fellowship Oshawa, I, I can say the same thing, you know? I know your works. Your toil and your patient obedience. I'm so encouraged by how so many of you are faithful. So many of you are faithful. But as we go into 2020, we have to, we have to remember, it's not about church. It's about Jesus. It's not, it's not about going to church or doing church or having the trappings of church. It's not even about being a Christian. It is about Jesus. Jesus Christ, like how I started off the message who he is, and everything we are is in response to who he is and what he did for us. And so my encouragement to you guys is, is to focus on Jesus, not just for Christmas, but 
every day moving forward because if worship is not the posture of our hearts, this is what happens. This is Jesus telling us that we need to repent and follow him. So let's not fall into the trap of the chief priests and scribes. Know everything and completely ignore Jesus. Amen? So that's the second group of characters. And the third one, so we have Herod, we have the chief priests, and then the third group of characters are the wise men. Let's get the picture up. So the wise men or the magi, I want you guys to just shout out some of the things we know about them, just from the culture and some of the things that you've come to know. Who are these guys? They're from the east. They're wise, and they are men. Astronomers. Three kings? Right. So the other time we hear about these guys is from the book of Daniel. And the king calls on the wise men to help him make decisions. They can't do it, so he calls Daniel. And Daniel helps the king. And Daniel becomes a wise man. Jew and Babylonian. What else do we know? They're rich. They're super loaded. What else? The culture says a lot about these things, yet there's so many things that we kind of just add into the story. For example, we don't know how many of them there were. We don't know if they're kings. We know that they're from the east, and we know that they're wise, and we know that they're men, and we know that they brought three gifts. And so I think we kind of boil it down to three kings, but... A lot of church history says there could have been about 12. could have been a lot more. But beyond all those facts, we three kings of Orient are. Put that all aside. I love the wise men in the story because they're such a picture of genuine worship. The least likely people who should be worshiping in this story are the ones who are, they're the ones who are bringing the worship. And so let's look at three things. The first thing is they traveled. It says in verses 1 to 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so what we know is that the Magi, they originated from western Iran, modern-day Iran. And they were followers of a religion called Zoroastrianism, and like Beth said, they were astronomers. They merged astronomy with religion. And so these people were patiently looking at stars in the sky because it was part of their worship. They studied the stars, and that's why it says they were drawn by the stars. Drawn by the star, by his star, actually, is what it says. But this trip is not, a, it's not an astronomy field trip. They didn't just come there because they're like, oh, look, a, a cool star. Let's go see this cool star. This was a very specific journey. They were drawn to Jerusalem by what they called his star, and they came to worship him. Who's him? The, the king of the Jews. So I, I'm not going to get too much into the science or the history behind the star and how the Magi would have known that it was his star. I actually started to dive into it yesterday, and it was completely overwhelming because there's so much drawback to the book of Daniel and the book of Genesis and the scepter of Jacob and the star rising and Sheba visiting Solomon and all these like fulfillments of prophecy that happens in this one story. So if you want to talk about it after, we can. But I love how that they're held in comparison 
with the chief priests, because the chief priests have thousands of years of prophecy. They still don't worship. But on the other, other hand, you have these pagan magi, and they're drawn by a star, and they come ready to worship. And I love that this happens in the gospel so many times. Isn't it often the least likely person? It's often the least likely person who we expect to worship. And so they come from afar, drawn by a star, ready to worship. And the second thing is they rejoice. In verses 9 to 10, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they talk to Herod. They hit the road. Star reappears, or it appears, and it lands, and it hovers over the house where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are, are staying. And it says that when they see the star, they didn't see the sun. They didn't see the king yet. They saw the star. And they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And it's such a beautiful picture of what happens when we seek after God, right? Because worship starts with seeking. And those who seek will find. That's what the scriptures tell us. And those who find will rejoice. Amen? Seek Jesus this Christmas. And speaking of finding him, let's look at verse 11 when they actually find him. It says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I love this verse, and I, I want you guys to try to imagine it in your head. They arrive at the house that Jesus was staying at. They see this baby or maybe small child, maybe a toddler. And this basic couple, just a normal Jewish man and woman and a baby. And what do they do? What do they do? They fall down on their faces and worship. Herod was threatened because Jesus was no, no mere baby, and the Magi worship for the same reason. He is no mere baby. I'm thinking, like, if this was just a baby, and you travel from thousands of miles away, and you arrive, and you just see a baby, what would you do? Oh, it's a cute baby, and then we're on our way, Right? But he was no mere baby. This was the king of kings. And these, these pagan men who had no relationship with God knew it. And they persevered through the trip. And they get there. And they worship him. And it's just so beautiful because Jesus Christ is worthy of that praise. And he's, these guys are the only ones doing it in this story in, in particular. After they worship him, they come bearing three gifts. Not baby gifts. This is not baby shower gifts. These were not, you know, here's a teething ring for your son. I remember as a kid, I used to read this and be like, that's a baby. Why are you giving him gold? Okay, now I'm older. I understand. I wish someone gave us gold. But frankincense and myrrh, that makes no sense to me. Then I started to unpack what those gifts symbolize. Gold is suitable for a king. Gold is what, is, is what Queen Sheba brought King Solomon in, in the book of 2 Kings. And throughout the book of the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, we see stories of kings and people coming from afar and leaving their gold. I think that's maybe where they got the picture of the three kings, 
I think it's Psalm 73 where it says, kings will come and lay gold at your feet. Maybe that's where they got it. Gold is fitting for a king, right? That makes sense. But then the frankincense, I had to do a little bit of, a little bit of research into this. The frankincense was a, was a resin that came out of trees, kind of like maple syrup. It would come out, it would dry up into these hard rock things. But what they would do is they would burn it in the temple during offerings when they were making sacrifices. Frankincense was symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus would make as the Lamb of God who would be laid at the altar for the forgiveness of his people's sins. And, like, I'm reading this, and um, did the Magi understand? I don't know if they understood why they should bring incense for a baby. But we, re- we rejoice and we worship him because that's what would have been burnt in the temple during their offerings. And it reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus would make for us. And that's why we're here today, right? And the third one is myrrh. So there's two things that two two ways that myrrh come into the picture. The first one, do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and they mix wine with something to make what the Bible calls gall, G A L L, and Jesus refuses it, right? So that's what they would have mixed in with it. They would have mixed in myrrh with wine and it would create a really bitter taste. And it was a way to help him stay hydrated but to also torture him while he was perishing on the cross. But even more than that, myrrh was a spice that was used during the embalming process. And it symbolizes that suffering and that bitterness that Christ paid for us. Jesus would grow to suffer greatly and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. Amen? And so when you see the the manger scenes, you know, you're at the store and you see the manger scene or maybe you have one in your house. When you... When you see that, don't, don't breeze by it. Don't, don't just rush by it. Don't, don't just say, like, this is part of our tradition. Look at this cute little setup here. We've got these little sheep and little baby Jesus. Oh, it's so cute. That was, that's a picture of what happened in reality. And when we, when we look at that, that's a celebration. This is Christmas for you. The meaning of Christmas is worship. The meaning of Christmas is worship. The hearts we need to foster this Christmas is not that of Herod. It's not that of the chief priests. It's that of the Magi. It's that of the Magi. Even though they were strangers, they sought after the king, and then they fell on their faces in adoration when they found him. Worship Jesus this Christmas, okay? Worship Jesus this Christmas. is about worship. It's not about the gifts. It's not about the parties. It's about worship. It's about worship. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you so much. You entered into into the world in the form of a baby, completely fragile. God, we can't wrap our heads around it, why you would send your son into this world to, to live a perfect life, to die, and to raise from the dead. But what we can do is worship. 
And so, Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Make Jesus big in our hearts, God, I pray. I pray that your spirit would clear out all the junk in our hearts, all the things in our minds that distract you from your glory. Jesus, this Christmas, I pray that you would, you would clear the deck, clear all that stuff away. Even though we know there's nothing wrong with presents and parties, God, it's your presence that we want. That's really the thing that matters. And I pray we would not get lost in all of the, the festivities, but that we would worship you genuinely, worship you, falling on our faces in worship because you are worthy of our praise. You are holy and amazing. You are beautiful and we, we worship you and we want to worship you more, God. I pray that you would help us, practically help us to, to bring us into worship. We know that it starts with prayer. We know that it starts with your spirit. And so Jesus, I pray that you would help us to worship you this Christmas. In your name we pray, amen.